I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy from Keshe Podcast, Two Jews on the News. Today on our program, special guest Jonathan Friedland. Will How did be... we get him? How oh, that was, that it was booking? tough. It was tough. A uh, little bit of coercion was involved, but yeah, you uh, he quite finally the agreed. contacts book to get him, that guy <laughs> to agree to come on this show. That's amazing. Don't get me started. He's intransigent, but he will be able to <laughs> answer the old age old question. Is it better to be a guest on Unholy or a co-host? Not one I've wrestled with before, but that, <laughs> but now I'm going to get to see that from both sides. That's going to be so. That is coming up good. our conversation about the escape artist. I'm very excited about this. This will be coming up later in our program. Um, I should be telling you that uh, many many years ago, when Yair Lapid was still a late night talk show host, he had this. Uh, prominent question. He would always ask his uh, guests. Uh, it was. It became more of a cliche over the years. He would always say, "What is uh, in Hebrew? It's Maisreli Benecha. What is Israeli in your eyes? How would you define being Israeli?" Uh, and you would have all kinds of answers to this. I, I suppose that you know you could say something like, uh, "Well, it's being bold and daring, like Antebi, but at the same time being completely messy uh, to have no public transport, underground public transport for seventy years. That's Israeli." <laughs> but why am I telling you all this? Because if you'd asked me this week. Uh, I would say that being Israeli or quintessentially Israeli is to have a huge pride march in Tel Aviv a week ago, 170,000 people marching uh, in Tel Aviv, but the whole thing, for hours, right, but the whole thing closing down before 6 p.m. just to not, you know, desecrate the Sabbath. I think that's very Israeli. Actually, I think it's a nice story. That, so, in other words, floor, you know, reveling in gay pride, etc. And I'm, I can only guess at the kind of costume, etc. Mm-hmm. But Shabbos is coming, and so <laughs> get home for Shabbos because your mum's at home to light candles. <laughs> exactly. You get home. I, I think do that's, like. That. I, I think that's a beautiful story. I think it's a beautiful story. Another thing that could be uh, just very Israeli in your eyes is the president of the United States arriving in less than a month without knowing who is the Israeli prime minister who will greet him at the airport. I mean, it's like a very bizarre version of Married at First Sight. It's like, well, there are three it, options, sir. <laughs> that's right. It's like one of those blind dates. I mean, you can really imagine in the speechwriting department, I've known over the years people who've done that in the speechwriting shop at the White House, and they're having to do, you know, insert name of prime minister here, <laughs> personal reference to prime minister's family to be TBD, you know, um, uh, as they try and prepare him for this visit. No, I mean, so that is still a massive question mark hanging over that, right? I mean, completely. Look, it's like we've been talking about this, I think, week in, not week in, week out, just week in for, for a while. Uh, now the weekly update about the Israeli government sort of teetering on the brink of uh, collapse. I, I don't have the news that it has collapsed, right? It's like watching, I, I don't know if this is a terrible analogy. It's kind of like watching an accident in slow motion. Like, it's very, very slow. So Bennett's aim is still to survive this summer session, which ends July 31st. The next autumn session begins at uh, October 23rd. He could, you know, theoretically, and we talked about this, stay on the wheel until elections are declared, and that could be March. And of course, what you have this week happening is Neil Orbach, his loyalist, basically saying enough is enough. I can't be part of this coalition, but not yet voting to dissolve parliament because, Jonathan, I've been bothering you with this for a while. If he does vote, then you know who becomes prime minister, Yair Lapid, and that is something that Neil Obach doesn't want. So it's still, you know, it's still kind of on the, it's like Talma and Louise just driving over the cliff, but not yet there. That's basically where we are. I don't know who uh, Talma and Louise are in this metaphor. I just don't know. Uh, look, I, I think uh, from everything you've uh, told us over this unfolding story over the weeks, 
my money is on it lasting quite long, <laughs> just because you know that that the freeze frame mm-hmm. of the Thelma and Louise car being in midair. I think that can go on quite a few weeks because, for all the reasons you've actually said over the over the weeks of this crisis, that the, the there are all these inbuilt delays, there's inertia, and yeah, people find the alternatives pretty unpalatable, whether they are opening the door to Yair Lapid, officially coalition partner, or, as we've also talked about, people who don't like this government, but don't much like handing votes to the alternative, which is to call for elections mm-hmm. and possibly opening the door to Netanyahu as prime minister. And so when they, when they don't like those alternatives, they sort of will stick in this purgatory, limbo, holding pattern, midair suspension, however you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, elections are scary if you're a party that doesn't know if you're going to go through the electoral threshold, like Guidon Sarr in a poll that we published uh, this week. We'll go back to that poll in a few uh, minutes. We keep talking about that magic number 61, right? And Netanyahu can have 61 votes to dissolve parliament. Those same 61 votes for to make him alternate prime minister in this Knesset, he doesn't have because you still have the joint Arab list inside that opposition they will never vote for Netanyahu becoming prime minister. So that will be harder for him to get. Again, still an option. We talked about the three options of the prime ministers who can meet Biden, President Biden at the airport. There is still a slight option that it could be Netanyahu. I don't see that coming. I still see that the option is elections. But again, uh, Bennett will be trying to drag this out as much as he as much as he can. Yeah, that's partly why I think that this may stagger on a tiny bit longer, just because there's enough people who are incentivized to stick with what they've currently got, rather than face the alternative, partly because I'm guessing that there would be a fear about elections, that elections will not bring an outcome that a lot of people mm-hmm. would want. Instead, if you're the joint list, could well bring an outcome where, once again, back in the Prime Minister's office, is you-know-who, Bibi Netanyahu. Yeah. Well, on the joint Arab list, the joke in the political circles is always, do they hate more, Netanyahu or the United Arab list? But never mind, we'll leave that aside for now and tell you about the opinion poll that we, uh, Channel 12, published this uh, week. First of all, to the question, should the government uh, continue or cease to exist? Only 35% of the people uh, polled said that it should continue. 56% said it should close shop. And I think what the more interesting sort of uh, data here is that the most important question relating to this government, I think, and that is the relationship between Jews and Arabs in Israel. The question was, are you in favor of integrating an Arab party in the coalition in the future? 31%, only 31% supported it. 56% were against. By the way, if you sort of uh, delineate between Arabs and Jews, and Arabs supported, 51% said they support integrating Arab parties, only 27% of Jews said they do. So that is part of the of that poll. I, I can't help but find that quite dispiriting and quite depressing, because at first when you said about people wanting the coalition to end, I was thinking, okay, well, maybe there's other reasons why they don't like this coalition to do with, uh, you know, efficiency or how they've handled COVID or whatever. But you're leaving little room for doubt there that what people are the, are the root of a lot of people's objections is the fact that it is this integrated uh, coalition, that it is a rainbow coalition, left and right, but also crucially Jewish and Arab. And that's the bit that has one admiration, I think, in, to, you know, to the extent that people are aware of it around the world. I think Jewish communities that spent a lot of time staring at their feet and feeling a bit embarrassed, frankly, about past Israeli governments quite liked 
being able to say, well, look, you know, here's an Israeli government that is quite diverse. It was quite handy when, uh, you know, in the bear pit of public and sort of Twitter argument about apartheid, being able to say, well, look, is Arab, an Arab party is in the government. That doesn't look like apartheid. Yes, I know before people write in that the apartheid allegation is much more sophisticated than that and it refers to the conduct in the occupied territories and so on. But still, symbolically, there was something about an integrated coalition that people outside the country quite liked. The poll number you're telling us suggests people inside the country not so impressed. But, but, I would want to point out to you something else. And that is what was on the table a year ago, which was Netanyahu tried to bring in the United Arab List, Ram, in a even more bizarre coalition, which was supposed to stretch from the far right, Vitalis Smotrich and Ben Gvir, to the ultra-Orthodox with Ram and the Likud. He failed only for one reason, that Vitalis Smotrich said no. I remind you that Ben Gvir didn't say no, and I remind you that Mansour Abbas didn't say no. Now, if this coalition had actually existed and survived to this day, and we had asked that question in a poll, do you think you'd have the same numbers? I would, I would argue that you wouldn't. And I think that that is the the reason, the deep reason, why Mansour Abbas preferred a coalition with Netanyahu and not this coalition, because he knew that if Netanyahu took him in, it would make Ram, the United Arab List, more kosher in the eyes of the Israeli right than it does when he's part of a coalition with the Israeli left. So I think that it's a difference in the coalition and the atmosphere around it, and not necessarily something that you know, dooms Israel forever to be in a government that can't succeed. That's what I, because I don't like the dispirited Jonathan. I like when, I like the good mood Jonathan. So I'm just trying to say that 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 is just something to, to kind of hold on to when you're, when you're looking at these numbers, these numbers aren't, you know, for someone who thinks that the integration of of Arabs in society is important. I think many Israelis do. I can understand why these numbers are, are dispiriting. Yeah, no, exactly. So that's a consoling thought. Netanyahu never stays very far from uh, the news in your neck of the woods. So tell us about this uh, head-to-head meeting in court. Oh, wow. Well, this is the, uh, how should we call it, the bizarre news uh, this week, the uh, lurid, sensational story. This, uh, of course, does have something to do with the political uh, situation this week. It's the Olmert Netanyahu, it's libel suit brought forth by Benjamin Netanyahu against Eud Olmert. I don't know, sort of our version of the, uh, I think, uh, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard uh, trial um, or one prime <laughs> minister who found uh, was found guilty of breaking the law being sued by another prime minister who may yet be found to be breaking the law. So let's talk about uh, what the story is. Netanyahu, his wife, Sarah, their eldest son, Yair, suing Netanyahu's predecessor, Eud Olmert, for libel after he described them in a television interview as mentally ill and in need of psychiatric treatment. Netanyahu filed a $250,000, equivalent of 780,000 shekels, uh, filed a suit against Olmert. (sighs) Well, uh, let's say it wasn't boring, Jonathan. It wasn't boring. Uh, And if you know anything about Israeli politics, which you do a lot, you know that there have been for many years, rumors about what has been going on inside the prime minister's residence in Balfour Street, especially, obviously, when Netanyahu was prime minister, and the level of involvement of Sarah Netanyahu increasingly in recent years of uh, Yair. I just want to point to one story, uh, which came out in the testimony of Nir Chefetz. Nir Chefetz, we discussed him in the podcast in the past, a former spokesman for Netanyahu turned state witness against him in the corruption trial 
Different trial for Netanyahu. Um, it's hard to keep track, you know. I'm, I apologize. Keep, this is what I'm here for. This is, is what I'm here for. So this many was in the Tel Aviv files. Magistrates Court, not to be confused with the uh, uh, Jerusalem District Court, not to be confused with Olmert's trial, who actually already sat in jail. I'm here for all these questions, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> so so uh, the story he tells is of a meeting. Uh, between uh, Netanyahu's top advisors and closest sort of advisors in a room in Balfour Street. They're discussing at the time potential compromise uh, between Netanyahu and a political uh, ally slash rival, Moshe Kachlon, who was then the Minister of Communications. And Ir Netanyahu, according to Nir Chefetz's story, bursts into the room, yells at the advisors for suggesting this compromise. This is added with a few physical gestures I will not describe to you. And he says uh, and yells at his father, the prime minister at the time, uh, that he should not be sucking up to Moshe Kachlon. There are other profanities. Again, this is a family-friendly podcast. I'm not going to say them out loud. But this story is obviously, besides being gossip, just the, the indicative of what, again, Nir Chefetz and others have been saying about the involvement of Yair Netanyahu, uh, the son of the prime minister, former prime minister, in his Let's- affairs. Just talk about him a second, because the shorthand or thumbnail sketch I have in my mind of Yair Netanyahu is as a kind of Don Jr. figure. So in the same way that Donald Trump Jr., he goes even further than his father does in his public mm-hmm. statements. He's, you know, Don Jr. is even more right wing, even more in people's face on social media. Also, I would say, whatever smarts, whatever reptilian intelligence Donald Trump Sr. has seems to me to be lacking in Don Jr. I have had been tempted to think the same about Yair Netanyahu. He's got all the kind of combative pugilism of his father, but not the kind of deep brain stuff that we do know Bibi Netanyahu is capable of. Would that be a fair thumbnail? Sketch? I think it's it's fair to, to, to talk to, about him as this sort of Israeli version of, of uh, Don Jr., and I think his rhetoric on Twitter is quite easily accessible to anyone who wants to go through uh, the sort of language and what he says about anyone who is, in his eyes, a political rival of his uh, father. Let's say that uh, many a journalists have been uh, targeted uh, by his uh, tweets. But here there's something more. Because what Neil Hefetz is telling, and by the way, according to Neil Hefetz's account, he left he quit as spokesperson because Yair Netanyahu was involved or intervened in a security-related decision uh, about the Temple Mount when Netanyahu himself was prime minister. So there is a larger question here of how much is he involved. It's not a question of foul-mouthing on Twitter. It's a question of how much is he involved in the decision-making of someone who is not only a former prime minister, but if this is the picture that is painted this is a man who's also eyeing a comeback. So that is very, very relevant. Again, to the extent that, you know, these these lines have been drawn uh, a long time ago. People who adore Netanyahu are going to uh, continue to adore him, whatever his son, whatever stories come out. And the people who love to hate him will continue to do so. It, it, is, it doesn't change that fundamentally, but it does, go, does give us a little bit of a glimpse into uh, what it was like. Good. So that is one to follow. That is a, another courtroom drama. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I'm never sure. I think we may even have mentioned this before, whether Israelis should feel proud or ashamed of this tendency. I know this is different because they're fighting each other, but of Israeli prime ministers and presidents even of the past to end up in court. And then in the case of the former president, Moshe Katsav, the former prime minister, Ehud Olmert, actually in jail. On the one hand, does this mean that Israel is, you know, recruiting its leaders from a terribly 
corrupt class? Or does it mean that, yeah, Israel has the institutions to hold its uh, most powerful figures to account? I think maybe both. See, you have the answer um, to my Israeli benecha. If you were asked by late night show talk show host, you could answer that. Yes, both both are true. Both. Both. That's my answer. I'm ready for my close-up with <laughs> Yair Lapid on Israeli TV, although I know he has other duties these days. The Escape Artist by Jonathan Friedland was published last week. It is already, I think it's safe to say, a literary event uh, on Sunday. The book will debut uh, in the Sunday Times bestseller list. It's a stunningly good book. Don't take my word for it. Yuval Noah Harari said... Quote, a brilliant and heart-wrenching book. Philip Pullman called it a magnificent book, an important and necessary story. Anthony Beaver wrote that it is an immediate classic of uh, Holocaust literature. I literally could not put it down. This is just a mere fraction of the reviews that run the gamut from great to fantastic. If Jonathan himself had tried to write these reviews, they could not have been, he could not have been this generous. Um, We're so glad to have him on the program today, Jonathan Friedland. You know, Yoni Levy, I now know why you get so many great guests on Unholy. <laughs> what a lovely introduction. No wonder they keep coming back. Um, that's very lovely. I've, you know, And I am doing interviews for about this book in lots of places, but I've been really looking forward to this one. Me too, me too. Because you were one of the very first people to read this book, and it's it's really good to be able to talk about it with you. And I think it was pretty clear that I liked it, and I thought it was... Uh, um, it was remarkable. And and we want to talk, kind of finally dive into uh, the book and uh, how important uh, and how significant it is. Um, and, and I'll start by, first of all, I, obviously you can set the stage better than me about what it's about, but it, it is the story of uh, Rudolf Verba, who was, uh, together with Fred Wetzler, the first two Jews to escape uh, from Auschwitz, two of only four who eventually succeeded in doing that. And I think it's important to note uh, that he did it for a purpose. Um, He wanted to warn Jews uh, who haven't yet arrived at the gates of the death camp, and he believed that that could somehow save them. Now, before we're kind of diving into this uh, breathtaking plot, I kind of want to start um, from the 19-year-old Jonathan Friedland, who goes to uh, the cinema to watch Claude Lanzmann's Shoah. Just a run-of-the-mill activity for a 19-year-old, really. Yeah, um, I was a strange kind of teenager. Does it surprise you <laughs> really, that I was a, really? I'm very that surprised. kind of teenager? Yeah. Um, and for the first time, kind of sees the image, sees Rudolf Verba on screen. Um, let's play a little bit of that clip of Rudy himself, and then I want to hear from you. What were your thoughts there at 19? Why do, do you smile so often when you talk about this? I am not a bar that I am using that smile so often. But you what do. should I do? Should I cry? That's a question. <clears throat> I don't think that crying has helped anybody. I look also nicer when I smile. I'm not sure. I hope. I think it's so typical of him that even just that bit captures so many different aspects of his personality because he did have this habit of sort of winding people up. Claude Landsman is a little bit irritated thereby or puzzled by that. And there I found episodes where Rudolf Verber was testifying in, in trials of war criminals and the judge would get irritated with him. But also, you know, he says, I look nicer when I smile. You know, he did care about his appearance as an older man. He, you know, would, would very dapper, dressed well. You, that bit, I think, is just a, a really striking moment. But from, you're from giving the me the um, the Jonathan Friedland of today, 
look at him. And I, I want the 19-year-old and what so he saw. So the 19-year-old saw this amazing film, Shah, nine and a half hours long. I saw it in two sessions, two sittings. That was the uh, – my, my strong memory of it was that – it's an amazing film because it's a nine and a half hour history of the Holocaust, but there's no archive. There's nothing in black and white. It's all what were then contemporary interviews in colour. And it strikes me now that many of the interviewees were, were not old. They were in their 40s or 50s. But at the time, when I was 19, I saw this parade of old men and women uh, as I saw them. And they didn't just seem old. They seemed broken to me. Um, Yitzhak Zuckerman, Antek is in there and he's at one point he's asked by Claude Landsman not how do you feel but you know what I mean and he says if you could lick my heart it would poison you is what he says mm. it's the most amazing line they they are I thought they looked broken by what they had experienced and then suddenly explodes onto the screen this man who unlike them isn't speaking uh, uh you know a foreign language he's speaking English he is dapper he's handsome he is charismatic in how he speaks I think you even heard it there uh, he's in New York City the twin towers are behind him uh he's wearing this tan leather coat he looks like Al Pacino in Scarface you know he's got a kind of movie star swagger about him it just sparks into life you're thinking who's that guy um he leaps off the screen he's vigorous he seems a generation younger than all the others and that is because actually it took me a while to realize this but that's because he was mm. i mean he was his first day in auschwitz the some last day of june 1942 he was 17 years old um a lot of the other people they were young too but they were late 20s 30s you know he's a teenager uh, and he mentions almost as an aside in the film, the, Lansman is not really interested in it. He had escaped from Auschwitz. And I knew even as a 19-year-old enough about Auschwitz to know that, you know, Jews just didn't escape from Auschwitz. So uh, as a 19-year-old, I was kind of intrigued by that. I was thinking, well, tell you know, how? How did you do it? And Lansman is really interested in, in Rudolf Verber as a witness because he was a kind of ultra witness. He was there so long, nearly two years. And he saw every stage, pretty well every stage, of the killing process. He worked at different places. He had this uh, panoramic view of Auschwitz. So that's what Landsman was interested in. But I found myself thinking, I want to know how you escaped. Um, and, and you know, who are you? You're um, this, this amazingly uh, charismatic, strong figure who explodes on the screen. And it takes you 30 years to circle back to that. Yeah, I mean, he he was there in the back of my mind as just a name and a face and um, and the outline of the story. I was a journalist while he was still alive. I mean, he I became a working journalist in 1989. Yoni, that's how ancient I am. And the so I would have had time in the 90s and in the noughties to find him and track him down. But it sort of stayed there somewhere in the back of my mind. But it came back in. In the, it has come back, came back in recent years with all the talk about post-truth and fake news. And uh, you know how things are, that people sort of sit somewhere in your in the back of your mind, mm -hmm. in the kind of sediment, and they just sort of rise to the top. And I wasn't even sure why I started looking him up again, but I saw immediately once I did, oh, okay, maybe that's why it's come back to me, because everyone was talking about post-truth, and he was determined to get the truth out mm -hmm. from under a mountain of lies. And so his story suddenly seemed urgent, not just relevant for now, but urgent for now.
Yeah, and you and 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 we'll talk about that urgency because there is some something of that urgency in the book as well. But one more question about Jonathan Friedland, and then we move to talk about Woody Velba because yeah, this is yeah. your. Um, you, you wrote twelve books; most of them are fiction. This is, I think, the only the third nonfiction book. The last one was seventeen years ago, and it's Jacob's Gift, which is a phenomenal book. It's, it's a family memoir, essentially. This is a completely different kind of undertaking. And I wonder if there's a moment in which you say to yourself, this is too daunting to take on oh, as a project. so much. I mean, you're completely right. It's the first nonfiction for such a long time. And the other nonfiction I did, first book I did was a kind of polemic based on being in, in Washington. So I'd done all the reporting just by seeing it. And then the next one was a family memoir. Yes, researching my own story, you know, family, talking to uh, people who knew about three members of my own family. But nothing like this. I mean, this is, I had to basically write a history book and that meant archives and uh, documents and uh, testimonies, legal tr transcripts um, and going through them and and the absolute duty to get it right. I mean, with my family memoir, in a way, there weren't many people around who could say if I got something right or wrong. They'll complain um, anyway, it doesn't really matter. They would complain yeah. anyway, it's actually, and you know, some did. And <laughs> so that was one thing. This was the the... The truth is I did have and I do feel a kind of reverence towards this subject and particularly towards the veracity, the obligation, the duty to be accurate and truthful because of Holocaust denial, because it is something you don't mess around with this subject. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a rule, for example, that you cannot write fiction about the Holocaust, but you better be damn sure you've got it you're 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 really serious, you've thought it through. You've you know, I'm pretty skeptical. I don't want to be accused of making a single word or detail up in this book every detail in there there's a source for it there's a line of dialogue it came from a letter it came from a memoir it came from a testimony it mm -hmm. came from an interview and so you know there's even a moment where rudy feels a bead of sweat on his back that's because at some point he said at that moment i felt a bead of sweat on my back mm -hmm. otherwise it's not in there but i did feel daunted by it because i just knew it would be uh, it was. I felt a duty to be absolutely quadruple, quintuple checking every single detail in the book. Let's talk about the escape itself, um, where the, I think, uh, skills of a thriller writer uh, really come in handy. Now, without giving too much away, this isn't the first escape in Rudy's life and neither is it the last. It's definitely, the escape from Auschwitz is definitely the most daring and the most dangerous. When you think of I guess, the set of characteristics that helped him and Fred Wetzler escape. What did they have that others who tried and failed didn't have? It's such a good question. And also, it's, a, it's an important one, because the very first answer is essential, which is to say luck. Mm -hmm. And I say that partly because he used to say that. And he was, I think, um, nervous of not just about escape, but about survivors, that question that's often put to survivors about how, how, you know, what was it about you that enabled you to survive? Because implied in that is, even completely unmeant, is a kind of criticism of those who didn't get through and didn't survive. And he was, and, and it's very clear in all his different um, recountings of his story, he wrote a very good memoir, you know, it was it was written by with a journalist in the 1960s, 63. But he also told, told his story in many other places afterwards. He always is clear to say, you know, this random act of goodness someone did or some, luckily I was, 
that's the first thing because there was there was luck involved. But in terms of the escape rather than just survival, I think there was. It's not. It's absolutely not coincidence how extraordinarily intelligent Rudolf Verber was. He goes on to become a scientist in later life. He had. We might talk about why this is important. An extraordinary memory, but he was ingenious um, and, and analytical. And even as a teenager, he started applying that analytical brain to what he was seeing in the process of Nazi killing, but also in the whole setup of the camp. And without giving it away, because you're 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 very generously uh, uh, protecting some of the sort of plot, plot twists, he and Wetzler realized there was a gap in the Nazis' defences. Not a physical gap, but a loophole. Um, a sort of flaw almost in their, almost in the kind of Nazi mentality, actually. And he realised that if you could think through that, exploiting that, there might just be a way out. But it required, once you'd had that insight, you then had to have brilliant physical resourcefulness, bravery, and luck. And all those things came together, but it begins with this penetrating, rather ingenious insight into this, into spot this gap. When we started talking about this, but I think it's really important to know, because obviously it's a large part of the story, is just how how important it was to him. You said urgent to get the message out. He, it wasn't about saving himself. In a way, he was even, if it's a strange thing to say, I think he could have survived Auschwitz. He was you know, he was fixed in the hierarchy of Jewish prisoners in a way that maybe could have saved him, but it wasn't about him. He wanted to get the message across. He thought that this whole machinery was built on the idea that people didn't know what they were coming to. And if he could just get the message across, then that would uh, save lives. And this, of course, uh, again, not trying to spoil the, the plot, but this warning turns into an actual report. It's called the Verbewetzel Report or the Auschwitz Report. It's a 33-page eyewitness account of what they saw. And as you said, he has a very, very, an extraordinary memory. And the smuggling of this document out is actually a suspense thriller within a suspense thriller, which is also a, a, a remarkable story. And here we kind of, I think, arrive in the most exasperating part, the most frustrating part of the story. Did he believe... It's two different questions. Did he believe and do the readers need to believe that he succeeded in that mission of saving lives? That's a complicated question because I I think absolutely he did. Uh, And through a series of international diplomatic moves, the report is responsible for the saving of 200,000 lives. The Jews of Budapest were in the sights of the Nazis and because, and I sort of give set out the the almost diplomatic dance that happens that leads to that the deportation of the Jews of Budapest who the Nazis hadn't yet got to and wanted to get to and were days away from getting to is halted as a direct consequence of Rudy and Fred getting this report out. So I think he is responsible, he and Wetzler, for saving 200,000 lives. And if you think about that number, I mean, Oskar Schindler, I think it's, we think in terms of 3,000 Jews, mm. Schindler's Jews, 200,000. Now, some of those were then killed by the Arrow Cross, the Hungarian fascists who took over, and they, but a huge number survived, and they now, they left behind children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I think it's the most enormous achievement. But you also asked about what he felt, mm-hmm. and he did not dwell on that figure and actually had to 
be told almost by others, look, 200,000, that is so significant. He was not fixated on that. He because was, he thought he could do more or yes. something more and, could happen. And a lot, a lot of rescuers talk like this. It's fascinating. Holocaust rescuers. These are not people who sort of preen proudly at what they did. They, they're um, several that I've read about and and you know looked at their story. They almost obsess actually about the ones they didn't save. And in his case, it was specifically the Jews of Hungary. So the, yes, the deportations were halted in early July, but that was only after they had been carrying on from the 15th of May, uh, over a 56-day period, 437,000 Jews were sent to Auschwitz and the overwhelming majority gassed. And that was all after he had got his report out. So that is what drove him to fury in the years after the war because he believed that that he couldn't have saved the six million, as it were. He didn't think that. But those people, there was no reason, he felt, for them to have been killed, given that they, the word had already been got out. His huge anger was that the word hadn't reached them. It had reached their leaders, but not them. So let's talk about that. Because, as you say, he was very, very angry that specifically the Jewish leadership in Hungary, also Slovakia, but, but let's talk for a minute about Hungary, didn't get the word out. And specifically, I think that he kind of pointed at uh, Rudolf Israel Kastner, still a story that is very contentious in Israel as well. And he really um, blamed him for not getting the story across. Is that, let's talk about that. And also, do you think that's part of the larger question I'm aiming at, which is why is this story uh, not known enough? And especially in Israel, why is it not, you know, why is he not recognized for his heroism? Yes, uh, 100% it is related. But so to go to the first bit first, um, the report was concluded and sort of signed off in the last days of April 1944. And within hours, maximum a day, uh, Kastner, uh, the de facto leader of Hungarian Jewry, gets a copy handed to him by the man who has actually compiled it. I mean, they are leaving nothing to chance. And the accounts suggest that Kastner read it, that he couldn't sleep the night he read it, that he showed it to other people, and he did not distribute it and publish it and disseminate it in the way that Verber imagined, Rudy, which is that really shouting from the rooftops, banging on Jews' doors, whatever you do, do not get on those trains because they are going to Auschwitz and to certain death. He sat on that report and he was, at the time, negotiating with the Nazis. That's not in dispute. The only question is about motive and what exactly did he think he was doing. And Kastner's defenders say he thought he was negotiating to save the lives of all of Hungarian Jewry. And Kastner's critics say, no, he knew by then that he was only going to save a hand-picked handful, nearly 1,700 uh, Jews who would end up on the famous Kastner train to safety. Uh, and that his price, is the accusation, was his silence. He had the report and he didn't distribute it. And that alone is grounds for for Rudy to feel the rest of his life a blood-boiling rage at mm -hmm. Kastner because the Jews who did go from Hungary, in later testimony, the handful who survived, Hungary, Romania, those areas, 
would say afterwards, we did not know. No one thought to tell us. They, I'm almost paraphrasing the words of Elie Wiesel, but others said similar things. They were in the dark about where they were going. Now, Rudy's belief was not that if they knew they would suddenly organise into a kind of army, an underground army and resist. You know, he was realistic enough to know that these were impo often impoverished Jews with very few friends, certainly no access to arms. But what they wouldn't have done, he believed, is have gone in orderly fashion. And it was his great insight that it was that orderly fashion that enabled the Nazis to do what they were doing so efficiently. Mm -hmm. And he has this very quite chilling image, which is he says that it is much harder to, or much easier to kill sheep than to hunt deer. And that, you know, with deer who are running in a hundred different directions and you have to pick them off one at a time, is very hard and very time-consuming and a lot get away. Sheep going into the abattoir in orderly columns are much, much easier to kill. And the only reason, nothing to do with some fault in the Jewish character, the only reason Jews went in that orderly fashion was because they did not know. And he held Kastner and others, other Jews who had failed to pass on the word, and, you know, it's handfuls, it's individuals, mm -hmm. but he held them accountable, responsible rather, for that for the rest of his life. I want to pause for a moment and listen to what how he explains that issue that you just talked about. What could have happened if, if people were panicking, if they were fighting it, if there was they wouldn't go in an orderly fashion. Let's listen to him saying it. The thing was the following. If the panic would have broken out and a massacre would have taken place on the spot, on the ramp, it would already be a hitch in the machinery. Mm-hmm. The next transport, you can't bring in the next transport with dead bodies around, blood all, all over the place, because this will only increase the panic and so on. In other words, I don't think that uh, this would have changed the situation very much, but the, uh, the, the, the Nazis were concentrated upon one thing. It should go in an orderly fashion in, uh, so that it goes unimpeded. One doesn't lose time. Secondly, if a panic arises, there were two, three hundred prisoners sometimes, there were only a hundred SS, all sorts of things can happen. I mean, it would be possible that a couple of those SS could be killed, overpowered, that some escapes would take place, all sorts of unpleasant things which disturb the daily order. I mean, they were very concentrated that no disturbance would take place. Still on the issue of Israel, because, you know, you must know that in Israel, Holocaust Remembrance Day is called Yom HaZikaron LaShoah VeLaGvura, Memorial Day for the Holocaust and the heroism of the Holocaust. The Warsaw Ghetto, ghetto Uprising, of course, part of Israel's iconography. I mean, Israel embraces these stories of heroism. Here is a true hero. He escaped from Auschwitz. He told the world. He managed, as you say, to save 200,000 Jews. And his story is not known in Israel. That can't just be because of him standing up to Kastner, that there has to be more here. What else was there? There is definitely more. And you're right, he went, has gone all but unrecognized in Israel. It was only down to the work of a uh, tireless uh, academic, Ruth Lin in Haifa, that his memoirs, the 1963 book, was even published in Hebrew in 1998. It took, you know, 35 years or more for it to appear in Hebrew. Even in Yad Vashem, it was filed away. This incredibly significant report was filed away without his name on it. 
Um, just and, and, and there are historical accounts that just talk about two Slovak escapees. Doesn't name them even. They they he and Vetsa were more or less sort of written out of the story. So why is that? And I think unfortunately it is very much related to the thing we just talked about about the about the Jewish leadership, Kastner, and so on. And something else about his personality. But but the most important thing is, is I'll start with the most important thing, because that is the Kastner episode. He was a, a teller of inconvenient and uncomfortable truths. People did not want, you know how vexed the Kastner issue has always been, and in some ways still is in Israel. And he was firmly on one side of that. And therefore, there were a whole lot of people who were in some ways the official keepers of the memory and the record, who were either defenders of Kastner, on the lines I said, oh no, he's a hero, he saved 1700, there, there's that camp. But there are also others who just think, let's not go there. This is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, what Hannah Arendt called the darkest part of the whole dark business, mm-hmm. the role of these Jewish leadership, the Jewish councils, Judenrat, put in these morally hideous predicaments where the Nazis say to them, you, you hand over the Jews to us. And what do you do in that situation? Incredibly vexed. And Rudy went right in there and was pointing that finger. And that was not what people really mm-hmm. wanted to hear. Rudolf Erbe himself lived in Israel for 18 months mm-hmm. in the late 50s. It didn't really work out. And that was one reason why. Because partly there was what's known as the Kastner trial, this libel trial, which brought it all out. That was all going on just before, actually, the time he got there. He found himself in a situation where really the then the Israeli establishment of the time was either defending Kastner or would rather hush the whole business up and move on. Mm. Um, And so he was somebody who was coming up and he was inconvenient and awkward and unwelcome. People did not want to hear that. He was also a bit indiscriminate. He didn't just point the finger at Kastner. He also was pretty scathing about the Slovak Jewish leadership saying, you were the ones who compiled these deportation lists that I was on as a 17-year-old. So he was pointing the finger at them. I think the Holocaust narrative people wanted to hear was the villainy was entirely the Nazis and only the Nazis, and Jews were only the victims in a very uncomplicated way. And he complicated that a bit by, not Jews collectively, but pointing the finger at these particular individuals who he wouldn't let out of his sights. And also there is something about him that he, and you, you write about this in the book, I think what's, it's one of the strong points of it is it doesn't gloss over his character. Like he wasn't the uplifting, inspiring survivor of the Shoah. He wasn't Elie Wiesel and he wasn't the man that you, that sinks in the pit of despair, the Primo Levi that you sympathize with and relate to. He was very, very angry, like to his dying day. That is, you describe a very angry man. Yes. I mean, his family members, his second wife, Robin Verbu, who helped me so much with the right, you know, with the research for the book, uh, who is still alive and living in New York, uh, living in the United States, you know, she describes a gentle, loving man, you know, of course. And colleagues describe him as tremendously stimulating company, but they would also say he was abrasive. He could be arrogant and difficult. And Yes, angry, that accusing finger. I mean, it astonished me that he lived the last decades of his life in Vancouver, in Canada. Even the Vancouver Jewish community, when it held events about the Holocaust, did not invite Rudolf Werber. I mean, they had not just a survivor, a witness, they had this hero, this towering figure from the period living in their midst, 
and they didn't invite him because they did not know what he was going to say and they did not trust that any talk by him it would not descend into accusations and angry you know sort of ranting and they thought we've got high school kids coming here that's not what we want and i realized that that is what a lot of uh, all of us in some ways are like with holocaust survivors and i'm uh, th this process has changed me on this i think we have put terribly unfair expectations on Holocaust survivors to be the sort of beatific, semi-holy healing figures. I think Wiesel is such a good example. Almost the way he spoke, gentle, mournful. You felt you were in the presence of greatness with him. You heard from that bit before, Verbo didn't play that game. You know, he's smiling because he's got this bitter, sardonic sense of humour and he's angry. And that's not, you know, you, I found a letter from him to a BBC television producer saying, I'm not the Holocaust survivor of cliché, the clichéd Holocaust survivor, in a, and sort of implied that I know the TV camera wants. I, mm. I'm not that. He knew that about himself, that he wasn't that. And therefore, you know, in a way, people didn't sort of roll out the sort of carpet for him to, to honour him. And yet, if, uh, you know, if only they had known. I mean, he is, in my view a hero of the 20th century. I think his story absolutely should be there up with the Primo Levi, Oscar Schindler, Anne Frank stories that define our sense of the Shoah. And I'm really hoping, especially in Israel, actually, that enough time has passed now that the people who were around in, in who sort of wanted him to quieten down and to sort of hush up this story in the 50s and 60s and 70s, I hope that in a way that... A feeling has passed. I think perhaps that generation has passed. And now maybe there's time to look afresh at this and say, look, even if he told us things we didn't really want to hear, he did something truly extraordinary. And oddly, part of it was giving a warning that people didn't want to hear. That's why he is such a big figure because of that. You know, I, I was going to ask you, I, my plan was to ask you at some point, I mean, it's writing about someone who left a lot of testimonials and, and, and a book, as you said, in his own words, but he, he's not with us. He died in 2006. And I was going to ask you if, if you think you actually like him, but I just listened to you and I think the answer is, is yes. It could have been a journey, but I think the answer to that is yes. Yes. I mean, and um, well, partly I want to be like him and be difficult and say, you know, but we shouldn't demand he be likable. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, look, I'm in awe of him. I admire him. I sort of revere what he did. You know, do I think he would have been the easiest uh, interviewee and customer? <laughs> Probably not. And I sort of imagine him, you know, if he was to read this book, um, he would be saying, well, look, on page 222, <laughs> you know, I'm I think be getting in, a big book of corrections. That's yeah, I think it saying. was quarter past 11, not quarter to 11. You know, I wonder about that. But I think, and, and what's really to his credit, I don't think he was desperate on a kind of ego level for attention. But I like to think it would have been gratifying for him to know that what he had done was recognised, even if it happened after his death, but also that the the story, the, the, uh, the burning message he wanted to convey, which is sometimes you have to warn people of something, even if they themselves struggle to absorb and accept that warning. But that's actually one point I, I really want us to make, because... There's something about, we keep saying this, right, that Woody Verba thought that if only the people who were en route to Auschwitz would know that something would happen. And it's quite clear that there is, besides the, the, the leadership and, and the fact that it took some time and the report had to come out, and that there is a difference between knowing 
the truth and acting upon it or knowing the truth and accepting it. We know those stories, right, of, of Jewish communities. I can think of specifically Rome, right, where the, the emissaries of the Third Reich and the Vatican telling them you have to escape and they, they don't believe it. So was there something maybe a little bit at the end of the day naive about thinking that if only people knew the truth, they would act upon it? Yes, in a way. I think there was, but it's something, it's a naivety that I think we all share. I mean, and we're both journalists, you think of whistleblowers, journalists, we all, the premise of everything we do is that if something is known, action will follow. That, you know, if you, as a whistleblower or a journalist, if you repeat, report some terrible wrongdoing, the act of making it public will or should lead to that wrongdoing being halted. And again and again, we're disappointed. Um, and I think that's, you know, if it is a naivety, it's about something in the human condition that mere facts are not always enough. You know, one of Rudy Verber's antagonists, big critics in Israel, was Yehuda Bauer, mm-hmm. who is you know still with us and the doyen yeah. of Holocaust studies. And I spoke to him for this book. And the, the small bit of agreement I think I w- w- sort of managed to tease out was that Bauer says that information is not always enough. The facts of something are not enough. Information only becomes knowledge when it's combined with belief. And his view, Bauer's view, is that, yeah, the Jews of Hungary, he thinks maybe they did have information, but even if they'd got Rudy Verber's report, the information, maybe it wouldn't have been enough because they wouldn't have believed it. And you have to believe it before it's knowledge, and it's only knowledge that leads you to to act. And in a strange way, I think Rudolf Verber would have had to sort of agree with that because he did see through his life that even those who did get the information didn't act if they didn't believe it. And there's a, I won't detail it, but there's a story at the end about how where somebody from that, from, from Hungary meets him all these years later and gives him real evidence of how people who did get the information still didn't believe it and therefore didn't act. And so I think that that is probably true that anybody, even now, you know, you think about the climate crisis or you think about these war crimes in Ukraine and those Ukrainians phoning their Russian relatives and saying, we're under bombardment, we're getting bombed. And their own family says to them, we don't believe you. I don't think you're telling the truth. The facts aren't enough if they're not believed. And I think that that's a universal thing that, again, I hope is something that perhaps can be taken people can take away from this book that, you know, yes, you have to get the facts out there, but you also have to really make sure people believe them. Mm-hmm. And another thing that I think, uh, as we're winding up this conversation, that uh, in the weeks after reading the book, I, I don't think I told you this, but it, more than anything, it reminded me, and it's going to sound very strange to you, but it reminded me of, of Lin-Manuel's Miranda's Hamilton. Of course, very different <laughs> from, wow. from a, a musical about the, uh, the first Treasury Secretary of the United States. But I think in what the writer has done, what he has done and what you have done, is to make sure that you're pulling this figure back into people's consciousness. In Rudy Velba's case, it's really just not pulling back, but just pulling into people's consciousness and making them aware of him and giving him the recognition that he finally deserves. And I think in that regard, not only is it a stunning book, 
but it's an incredibly important one. So thank you, Jonathan Friedland, for coming on Unholy, I think. Is, uh... It's been a pleasure. I must start <laughs> listening to this podcast. You obviously... Oh, and to all my uh, Israeli and American friends who have been really, it's like I'm your literary agent here, asking me why they can't get the book on Kindle. I think the answer is because it's only out in the UK, not in the United States yet. So there's no Kindle version. But if you want it, you can just go on a British site and order it. Was that uh, passive aggressively promotional enough? I love that. I, I love so. passive aggressive promotion. So. Uh, it's absolutely right. It's coming out in the United States in October, um, but it's available now in all the other English language places, um, you know, Australia and New Zealand, South Africa and uh, and Britain, obviously. And I think import copies are available in Israel. And they, they are indeed. They are and, and so I'm told there's lots of them heading there. So if you, you know, <laughs> if people are English language readers, they can Read it. Call me up and English get a copy. Right is what away. you're trying to say. They should be able to do that. Yeah, <laughs> that's. Um, it's been a pleasure, Yoni Levy. It really has. Um, we should do this more much. often. Talk we you should. and I. Thank you. And we definitely must put. It's a bit like Hamilton on the paperback <laughs> edition. Do anything. Only get someone important to say it. <laughs> So we have our usual business to attend to and uh, the handing out of awards. For Mensch, uh, I think there's probably no contest, really, and that is to note the death of Aleph Bet Yehoshua, A.B. Yehoshua, one of Israel's very greatest writers who died this week. I had the very good fortune of interviewing him two or three times, and we have managed to dig out of the archive uh, me asking him. This was at Jewish Book Week in London in 2013. And well, let's hear it. You'll hear the encounter. If you had a British Jew who went to Jewish Book Week every, you know, every year and went to synagogue every morning and uh, only immersed themselves in Jewish culture, that is a partial Jew compared to the Israeli Jew who supports Hapol Tel Aviv and drives a bus during the day and but, never thinks about uh, Jewish culture, Jewish books, the, Jewish tradition. The, the Jewish culture, Which one is the total Jew? Which the one's Jewish the partial Jew? Culture, if it, the Jewish culture is not Jewish culture, it's life. He has to vote. He has to fight. He has to deal with thousands of moral things, not abstract things. It's not studying. He has to decide what to do with Gaza. It's not the question of the poil or the other thing. These are life uh, problems that you have to decide every day yes. as a part of the society, as you British are doing it every time as a British. <laughs> this is you asking him, because obviously I've, one of the things he said, um, he called diaspora Jews partial Jews. I think he also, there is this line which he says, I have no doubt that in the future when outposts are established in outer space, there will be Jews among them who will pray next year in Jerusalem uh, while electronically orienting their space synagogue towards Jerusalem on the globe of the earth. And you ask him about this. Who's the partial Jew and who's the total Jew? Thankfully, a question that we do not ask on this podcast at all. But that is his answer. And that is a, a clip of you from nine years ago. I would recommend, by the way, to listen to the whole conversation. It really is a beautiful one between you and Aleph Bet Yoshua. Well, I mean, he was, I think, probably outside Israel, the least recognized of that trio that I always think of as Israel's three tenors, Amos Oz, David Grossman, Aleph Bet Yoshua, partly because his English was fantastic, but he was quite accented. He wasn't as sort of mellifluous and eloquent in English as the other two. And so he didn't necessarily get that big audience outside in the way they did. But interestingly, he was really interested in the kind of whole question of diaspora, almost more actually than the other two, in the sense of 
his Zionism, he, he was an absolute pure Zionist in the, in the classical sense of that word, meaning he believed Jews lived better as a nation in a single land than as a dispersed civilization. So even before you get to the, his views on the politics of the region and where the border should be, he, it was quite old-fashioned to hear somebody represent that classic Zionism. You lot, he would say to Jewish audiences, he did it in America. He really would wind them up. He had arguments there when he would say, you are not complete as Jews. For you, it's like a jacket. For me, it's like a skin uh, being Jewish. It meant that he really had something to say to Jewish audiences mm-hmm. outside. And I think you heard him do it there very beautifully. Yeah, I mean, look, he is definitely, I don't think it's a question, he's a literary giant. And his writing and his technique and his books are are, are really remarkable. A friend of the pod, um, Mitch Ginsburg, who wrote this beautiful obituary uh, about him in Times of Israel, uh, reminded me of a quote, a review in one of his books in The Nation, uh, where they wrote, the Nobel Prize has been given for less. Um, I, I think he was critically acclaimed, as you say, very much in Israel, I think also in other literary circles. He, he really talked and he was interested interested in the relationship between Israel and diaspora. And he was very, very interested, of course, in the issue of Israel and and the Palestinians and someone who later in life, obviously an advocate of the two-state solution, but later in life started saying, you know, this cannot happen. Let's admit it. And let's now talk about the one nation state. Of course, he never suggested Palestinians would not have rights in this state. Uh, But that is something that also uh, happened in recent years. And uh, I think a lot of parts of the Israeli left were sort of surprised by this turn that he took, but he was an incredibly brave man. And he wasn't shy about keeping uh, his opinions to himself. You can, you know, agree or disagree. But I think that he really was a, a giant. Yeah, no, I agree. A towering figure and um, an incredibly generous, lovely to talk to. Yes. Bully, everyone called him. And he was yep. this very sort of huggable, lovable warm man, man. A really warm man. I know that. And he was such a sort of devoted husband. He was in love deeply with his wife and I think was really um, perhaps in some way sort of broken by her mm-hmm. death not so long ago. Uh, but we mourn his passing and make our, we, we bow to him with our Mensch Award. And what about Chutzpah? Well, trying to lighten the mood a little bit before we uh, wind up this uh, conversation, I think we will give, uh, this is the chutzpah story I want to tell you, which is that uh, Australian actor, very famous in the United States, of course, Rebel Wilson, posted a picture of her. She's not the chutzpah award nominee, no, no. What was done to her is the chutzpah story. Uh, She posted a picture with her female partner uh, to her 11 million Instagram uh, followers. She, of course, received a tidal wave of uh, support. But we have to say that this wasn't on her own terms because the Sydney Morning Herald ran a column and told her that if she will not say that she has a female partner, they will basically out her, which... I just don't understand this. Why are people doing this? Why in 2022 is this something that someone gets a chance to do? And she has basically opted, what she had to do was uh, opted to, to sort of tell the story uh, herself. And this is just a terrible, you know, this chutzpah of just, you know, saying that we will out her. And when she decides to take the story in her own hands, then being upset at her for actually killing their scoop. I mean, that is just classic chutzpah. To me, that, that we, it, we thought it, we could mention this week. No, it absolutely has to be. It's that the, the the cherry on the cake is when they then furiously say, "How dare she do this herself? They've stolen our story." They say that she sort of gazumped our story because she did it, went out with herself after they have 
essentially threatened her and blackmailed her, saying, you've got to give us this thing. I mean, it is amazing, Chutzpah, to do that, say, how dare you uh, do the story after they had bullied her into doing it publicly. Um, yeah, no, worthy winner. I think that's almost, talking of classical, the classical meaning of the word Zionist before, that's almost the classical meaning of the word Chutzpah, their fury at her telling her own story after they had pressured her to do so. If you are uh, enjoying the podcast, please do join our Facebook group, Unholy Podcast. You can chime in there with ideas and opinions of the episode. We will, And also send in questions, things you would like us to address or talk about. We are here for that. Send Jonathan questions. He likes to answer <laughs> questions. You'll have to Look be the interviewee on the show. We're going to get you on next. Not next <laughs> week. That would be too much. Plugging the, the our social media. We also yeah, have an Instagram page. It's called yeah, Molly. Just I'm say, totally that's... on it. You know that. I'm <laughs> on the ball with that stuff. I'll do the thank yous. I think I'm better at that and saying thank yous. So I'll do that. Um, thank you to Gaia Glazer and to Omer Primatz, Rom Atik, and Irad Eshel for original music. And Jonathan, we shall meet next week. I'll think of a whole new set of questions for you. We will. And thank you, Yoni, for everything. <laughs>